Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I want to ask you guys to finish my sentence. The Son of Man has come to fill in the blank. Set us free. Well, I'm looking for biblical, the, the particular biblical verse. The Son of Man has come, and there are three correct answers, biblically speaking. The first two are pretty standard. The first comes from Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The second comes from Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, the third statement is a bit more surprising. It comes from Luke chapter 7, verse 34, where Jesus says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. So the first two are statements of purpose, answering the question why he came. That is, to seek and save the lost, to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The third statement is a statement about method, that is, how he came. Jesus came into the world eating and drinking. And eating and drinking were no small or incidental part of Jesus' ministry. As we read, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. That's Jesus speaking of himself. And then he says, speaking to those present, And you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So that was the accusation. And of course, a gluttonous man is someone who eats too much, and a drunkard is someone who drinks too much. Jesus was serious about eating and drinking, so much so that his enemies accused him of doing it in excess. A gluttonous man and a drunkard. Now, have you guys ever noticed how often Jesus is depicted in the Gospels as eating and drinking? He turned water into wine at a wedding feast as his first miracle, to which the head waiter replied, You have kept the good wine until now. He took, as we just read, a few loaves and fishes from a boy, and he multiplied them to feed thousands of people. He broke bread with tax collectors and sinners, and even Pharisees, and of course his disciples. The last night of his earthly and natural life, he sat around the table sharing a meal with his friends. And even after his resurrection, his disciples were in the Sea of Galilee fishing, and Jesus calls them, and they recognized they knew it was the Lord when they had breakfast with him on the shores of Galilee. One scholar put it this way, when reading the Gospels, you sometimes get the impression that if anywhere in ancient Galilee you heard a loud noise and a lot of laughter and talking and singing, you could be reasonably sure that Jesus of Nazareth was around somewhere nearby. Jesus created fellowship wherever he was. Jesus created fellowship wherever he was. So this morning, we're continuing our series on the church community. And thus far in the series, our aim has been to show how the gospel determines the shape and character of the church community. So, for instance, we said that the gospel is about adoption, meaning God takes people who are strangers and he adopts them into his family through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And that means that in the church, we're to love one another as brothers and sisters. That the church isn't first and foremost an institution. That it isn't first and foremost an event that happens on Sundays, but that it's a family. We also said that the gospel was about justification. Meaning that God accepts those who are sometimes unacceptable to us. Because we're accepted not on our opinions or this, that, or the other, but on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So that means that in the church community, we're to be united on the essentials, but on those peripheral matters, we're to tolerate genuine difference. And then, of course, the gospel is about Jesus. And that means that our community is not about shared interest. It's not about hobbies. It's not about backgrounds. But our community is in, through, and for Jesus Christ. So having seen, then, what the church is supposed to look like, this latter half of the series, what we're going to do is turn toward the practices of church community. That is, we're going to furnish ourselves with the tools that the Scripture provides for realizing and sustaining the scriptural vision of what church community is. So in the latter half of the series, for instance, we'll talk about things like honoring one another, and the culture that knows nothing about honor. We'll talk about mutual accountability. We'll talk about the use of our spiritual gifts for the common good. We'll talk about even sharing our possessions. We'll talk about forgiveness and so on and so forth. And when we put these practices into use in our community, then we can sort of work our way to becoming what the gospel calls us to be. So that said, can you guess what practice we're discussing today? It's sharing a meal together. There's a lot of food that we've been talking about. And that's not a coincidence. I wanted to start here because I think really sharing a meal, as maybe mundane as that might seem, is the most important practice in the life of the church. Obviously, second to the obvious word and prayer and so on and so forth. And as we'll see, it's one of the first things that the early church does when it comes into existence. And thankfully, it's something that in our church we do quite regularly. If you attend potluck, if you participate in community groups, you will eat, by the end of the year, close to 40 meals with your brothers and sisters. So my goal this morning is not to go from 41 meals to 50, though that would probably be a good thing, but to take an existing practice, right, we eat and break bread together quite often to take an existing practice and help us to understand its meaning just a little bit better. Because, biblically speaking, a meal is far more than just a meal. It's something that binds us together as a community. So we'll start by first looking at, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with this term, the concept of koinonia in the New Testament. So we'll look at this concept of koinonia, then we'll see how it's expressed in the church's main meal, which is the Lord's Supper. And then we'll see how that works its way out into the other meals that we have together, be it potluck or community groups or just when we get together on our own. So that's the flow. Koinonia, Lord's Supper, and then our meals. Now, we're introduced to the concept of koinonia in that great passage in Acts, which we just read about the life of the early church. But just in order to grasp that, the meaning of it, I want to take a step back and get a running start at it. It all begins with Pentecost. 
This is a Jewish holiday on which the Spirit descends upon the disciples. Now, prior to his ascension and enthronement in heaven, the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus commanded his disciples to wait for what he called the Father's promise, or the promise of the Father, meaning the Holy Spirit, who would come to them and empower them on their mission. And so sometime later, all the disciples are gathered in prayer in the upper room, and Luke tells us, Acts 2-2, suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it swept through the house, and there appeared, again, Acts 2-3, tongues as of fire resting on each one of them, and from the upper room, the disciples spilled out into the streets, proclaiming the mighty deeds of God, all in different languages. So at the Feast of Pentecost, there would have been Jews from all over the world who spoke all different languages. And when the disciples poured out into the streets, they heard them in their own language. And so as this commotion drew a crowd, you could imagine sort of the, 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 the chaos of them pouring out into the streets... As the commotion drew a crowd and everyone gave their opinion about what was going on, Peter stood up to speak. And he said, Jesus, whom you, that's the crowd that was present, whom you crucified has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. And God, he says, uh, chapter 2, verse 36, has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Therefore, on account of his exaltation and his enthronement at the right hand of God, Peter says, he has received the Spirit and has poured forth this which you see and hear. So he explains the meaning of what's going on. And the crowd that was present, the scripture says, was pierced to the heart, knowing that they had been on the wrong side of things. They were responsible in part for putting Jesus to death. And now they see God has exalted Jesus, this one whom they crucified, and has given him the Spirit. And so they respond in repentance. What must we do to be saved, they ask, and faith. And Luke says that that day they were baptized and there were added about 3,000 souls to this new church community. That's Acts 2.41. So Christ, exalted into heaven, received and poured out the Spirit upon the disciples. And immediately the Spirit created a new community and a new way of life. And the community is called the church, and their new way of life is described in Acts 2.42. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, the key term in Luke's description is that word fellowship, or koinonia in the Greek. Now, it's a very common scriptural term, and it's translated in various ways as participation, as sharing, or as contribution. And the word koinonia comes from the root word koinon, which means common. So koinonia, koinon, common. 
as opposed to the Greek word idios, which means um, something private. It means something that belongs exclusively to the individual. So when the Spirit descended upon the disciples, what he created was something common. What he created was something that was shared between the disciples. Hence, scholars say that koinonia means something like sharing a common life or sharing a community relationship. So the new thing is not private, something that we have to ourselves as individuals, but it's common. It's something that we share in together. And of course, it's not something natural, but it's something distinctly spiritual. Koinonia is created and maintained by the Spirit. So Paul, he's writing many years later at this point, and he's writing to the Philippians, and he tells them, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, or, or, or he just adds the phrase, the fellowship of the Spirit, the koinonia of the Spirit. And he repeats the phrase in his second letter to the Corinthians, in his benediction, 2 Corinthians 3.14, he says, The fellowship, the koinonia of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. So in other words, what the disciples held in common was the Spirit of God. And the common spirit that was given to them by Jesus creates a common life between them. That is, the Spirit brings the disciples out of privacy and seclusion into fellowship, into a shared and common life. And so almost immediately, as the expression of this new common life, the church begins holding common meals. Verse 42, they are breaking bread. And again in verse 46, it says, Luke says, they were breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together with gladness. So in addition to their common meals, they even had, Luke says, all their possessions in common. Koinos is the word. Selling their property and possessions, sharing them as anyone might have need. Chapter 2, verse 44. So where the Spirit is present, koinonia, or fellowship, or shared life is present. Put simply, the Spirit brings people together. The Spirit unites people in genuine love and affection for one another. As the church father Tertullian would say many years later, one in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share earthly goods with one another. He was writing against those who were sort of uh, critiquing the church's way of life. He says, we don't hesitate to share with one another. He says, all things are common among us, koinonia, except, he says, our wives. So that's a good thing. But he says, all things are common among us except our wives. So the spirit that we share, that God has given to each one of us, creates a shared life between us, which leads us to then share all things with one another. So... I know this communal life sounds rather intense. Like when we see what was happening with the early church, it's, it's, it is a rather involved affair. And I think at first it can seem off-putting. And if I'm honest, that's how it sort of feels to me at first. 
I've heard many sermons explaining away the necessity of this vision for us today. But there are some communities um, who try to practice this, who sort of live a communal life in the name of Jesus. However, what I want to point out is just that it's important for us to understand that koinonia, this common life, is both a gift and a goal. So on the one hand, it's a gift, meaning that it's a reality accomplished by the Spirit, regardless of how together or not together we are. It's a spiritual reality that we can do nothing to destroy. On the other hand, however, it's also a goal. That is, koinonia, fellowship, is something we're supposed to live into. That that spiritual reality would be worked out in our lives on a historical level. Or just more simply, though this picture of the earthly church sharing fellowship, sharing meals, even sharing their possessions, going together day by day from house to house, though this picture is an ideal picture, it's not a picture that we can dismiss. It's something that we must stumble to realize, and stumble we must, because koinonia is not an option. It's something we must work toward in the power of the Spirit. So, listen, um, I don't want to scare you off, but I do want to nudge you in this direction. Because the simple reality is that when the Spirit is at work, He draws us into a shared and common life. That's what He does. And there's room in the Christian life for solitude and uh, for seclusion, but that's not the general course of things. We see Jesus oftentimes retreating, excuse me, to be by himself. But that retreat is always followed by an entrance back into the life of the community with his disciples and, of course, with the wider world. However, that koinonia, right, it doesn't look the same for all of us. To say that the church is supposed to be a fellowship doesn't mean that introverts suddenly become outroverts or extroverts, outroverts, <laughs> that wallflowers, it just went too well, um, that, you know, wallflowers suddenly become social butterflies and this kind of thing. Rather, what it means is that each person in their own way, as an extrovert or an introvert, participates in the life of the community. Each person is able to find their place because there's a place for everyone. What there's not a place for is isolation, right? Is outright seclusion from the rest of the church. And the reason there's not a place for that is because, again, this common spirit that we share. He brings us together into fellowship. So that said, koinonia manifests itself in three ways. The first two, as we've seen, are common meals and common possessions, or simply, if that sounds a little bit too red scare, simply sharing. It, the, script, the Spirit leads us to share with one another. And the third is the common good, and we'll see that in 1 Corinthians a little bit later in this sermon series. So what we'll do is we'll talk about um, sharing in another sermon. We'll talk about the common good in another, in another sermon, but this time... We want to talk about how our communion, koinonia, is expressed over the table. It's expressed over a meal. So as we've seen, this idea of fellowship was not the church's invention. 
It was something that was practiced by Jesus. The Son of Man, remember, came eating and drinking. And you could imagine for a moment, just as a disciple of Jesus, where would have been the place that you had the most open relationship with him? Likely it would have been around the table. The disciples did everything with Jesus, including breaking bread and sharing a meal. And it was there, around the table, face to face, eating the same, drinking the same, that they would have experienced fellowship with the Lord. Hence, after Jesus is risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, when the church went around from house to house breaking bread, they weren't doing something new, right? This wasn't their invention, but they were simply continuing the pattern that was established by Jesus. They were doing something Jesus taught them to do, something they did with him almost on a daily basis. The only difference now is that Jesus is not present as, in, er, as host in flesh and blood, right? meaning he is not there physically before them, but he's present with them through the power of his spirit. He's dwelling inside each one of them. And so they're continuing a practice that they had always done. So Luke tells us, again, verse 42, that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And that always amuses me, that the early church devoted themselves to these shared meals. Because you think, what's the secret sauce, right, that led the early church to sort of conquer the Roman world? And Luke tells us they ate together. They broke bread. But it goes to show us the importance of a simple meal, the importance of eating together. But it wasn't just a simple meal. Notice the definite article before breaking bread. It's the breaking of bread. And from what I can tell, most scholars are in agreement on this. The breaking of bread is a reference to Holy Communion. It's a reference to the Lord's Supper. Later on in Acts, um, Luke tells us, Acts chapter 20, verse 1, I believe, that uh, the church gathered together on the first day. So on Sunday, he says, to break bread or for the breaking of bread, to share the Lord's Supper. And so that brings us to the passage we're going to spend most of our time in this morning, and that's 1 Corinthians. And there Paul describes the Lord's Supper as the supreme expression of the church's koinonia, as the supreme expression of the church's fellowship. Now, in that passage, Paul's immediate concern is idolatry. That is, brothers and sisters in the church who had been eating food sacrificed to idols in the pagan temples. So quite literally, right, there were members of the church who were attending worship services of other so-called gods. And their justification for this was simple. They were just saying, there are no other gods. The one God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These other gods, Apollo, Zeus, whoever else, are fictions. And so therefore, their reasoning was that participating in pagan worship services and sharing a meal um, with these pagan worshipers is a moot point, right? It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter because their gods are fake. So how does Paul address this? Because clearly it's an issue, right? Imagine this broke out in our church and we found out that someone was, you know, breaking bread at, uh, I don't know, there's not really any other groups here, uh, a Wiccan festival or something. 
So how does Paul address this? Well, he doesn't warn them about the commandments. You know, he doesn't remind them about saving appearances. Instead, he makes what I find to be a strange move, and he turns their attention to the Lord's Supper. Paul wants to make it very clear that the church should not be participating in pagan worship services, and he does so by teaching them about the nature of the Lord's Supper. So look at verses uh, 14 through 16. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, meaning don't go around the temples and don't go eating the food sacrificed to idols. He continues, I speak to you as wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So I want you to notice the word that appears twice, sharing, as it appears in my translation, or perhaps participation or communion in yours. Again, it's the term that we've been referring to Koinonia. So he says, is not the bread which we break a sharing, a koinonia in the body of Christ, and likewise the cup which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Meaning, the supper for the Apostle Paul is not an empty ritual, and it's not a bare symbol, but instead he's saying something is actually happening spiritually when we partake. Or in more straightforward terms, Christ is present among us when we share the supper. We have a real fellowship with him, real koinonia with him, in the same manner that the disciples did before us. He's present with us. He's present with the church when we break bread in his remembrance. Now, it's important to remember that this is not metaphorical language for the apostle. His whole argument, as we'll see for forbidding the church from participating in pagan worship depends upon the fact that something is actually happening when we partake of the supper. Christ gives himself to us. The material elements, the cup and the bread, are channels through which we taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, 8. So because there's a very real bond that is forged between us and the Lord in the supper. On those grounds, the apostle forbids the church from participating in other worship services. So look what he says. He says, Now, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. So the pagan worship services where sacrificial meat is prayed over, is blessed, is sacrificed, and then eaten, Paul says that what's happening there is not an empty ritual either. Instead, he says the worshipers, the worshipers are sharers. There's our word again. Koinonia, or koinonios. They're sharers in their gods, which are actually demons. And so Paul's point is very simple. Look at the next verse. He says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. 1 Corinthians 10.21 So the point, and here's what I want you to realize about what happens when we take the Lord's Supper, is that the koinonia that we share with Christ, this fellowship we have with Him, 
It creates a mutually exclusive bond between us. Meaning, we can't have such close fellowship with the Lord and then turn around and share that fellowship with someone else. So if a brother or sister hypothetically came to you and asked, hey, why shouldn't I worship you know, at the local Wiccan feast? Or why shouldn't I go break bread at an Islamic temple in Albuquerque on their holy day? Well, you'd answer to them, as Paul did, because you share in the Lord's Supper. Because you have koinonia with him. And you can't have koinonia with him. You can't break bread at his table and then go to the Wiccan feast and share with demons. And so Paul answers with a rhetorical question. He says, Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than him, are we? So this fellowship with rival would-be gods, demons, he says it stirs Christ to jealousy. Why? Well, because we're his. We belong to him. And if he gives us his body and blood in the supper, through the bread and the cup, then we must give ourselves back to him body, soul, and spirit. That is, our fellowship with Christ, again, creates a mutually exclusive bond. You can't share that intimate fellowship here with the Lord Jesus and then share it with anyone anywhere else. And I just want you to know that this is very central for the Apostle Paul. Because his moral reasoning here in chapter 10 is remarkably similar to what he said elsewhere in chapter 6. In chapter 6, he's addressing the issue of fornication. Specifically, believers in the church, again, going to pagan temples, and this time um, having sexual relations with prostitutes. So, a huge issue. Well, how does he settle it? Again, the apostle appeals to this fellowship that we share with the Lord Jesus. And the first thing, or he concludes his argument by saying that contrary to you know, our current views of the day, he says that our bodies are not our own. That's 1 Corinthians 6.19. That our bodies don't fundamentally belong to us, and therefore we can't do what we want with them because they belong to Christ. And he says, not merely as his possession, but as the limbs and organs of his own body. Now, the analogy here is marriage. So just a few verses on, in chapter 7, verse 4, he says, The wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. So according to the scriptural teaching there in Genesis 2, the husband and wife become one flesh. And therefore, the husband, his, he can't do what he wishes with his body, and neither can the wife. They can't share it with another because they share koinonia with themselves. And so in the same manner, Paul's saying, he says in 1 Corinthians 6.17, we're one spirit with Christ. So we can't give our bodies which belong to him to prostitutes. He says, verse 15, shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. So the point is, in chapter 10 and chapter 6, and our sharing in the Lord's Supper, or, or rather in participating in a pagan worship service or with a prostitute, the reason these things are forbidden is because we share this bond of koinonia with Christ. And that bond 
creates this mutually exclusive relationship. Because we share this, we can't share anywhere else. So coming back to the Lord's Supper for just a moment, when we partake, we're not merely, you know, just, I don't know, going through the motions, right? Just having, you know, a half a quarter of a meal. Rather, what we're doing is we're sharing koinonia with Christ. And when we take, we're reaffirming this mutually exclusive bond between us. And it teaches us, as Paul says, to flee from idolatry. It teaches us to serve only the Lord Jesus. And so Paul, this is a long argument he makes. He sort of concludes it in chapter 11, verse 29. He says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So obviously these are really stern words. But given the preciousness of what happens in the Lord's Supper, they should be strong, right? The Scripture is not light when it comes to adultery. It's a serious offense because it's breaking that bond between the two. And so also, idolatry is a serious offense because it's breaking the bond that we share between us and the Lord. So instead, Paul says, flee idolatry and discern or judge the body rightly. That means we must recognize that in the supper we share real fellowship with the Lord Jesus, and because of that we must treat it appropriately. Now that doesn't mean that the supper becomes this fearful thing. It's supposed to be a joyous occasion. Rather, what that means, to judge the body rightly, it means that we should respond with love and absolute loyalty to Christ who gives himself to us. He gives himself to us in absolute faithfulness and love, and we give ourselves back to him in absolute faithfulness and love. So, quickly, that's the vertical meaning of the supper, but it also has a horizontal meaning, and this is where it affects you and I. So Paul says, judge the body rightly in relation to Christ, but also in relation to one another. So on the vertical axis, he says that the bread and the cup are koinonia with the body and blood of Christ, and on the horizontal axis, he says this, this is uh, 1 Corinthians excuse me, 10, 17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. In other words, the same koinonia that binds us to Christ binds us to one another. It makes us, Paul says, one body. And it's that body that we're to judge rightly. Now the Corinthian church, and I've given them as an example many times now, They failed to do this. Their celebration of the Lord's Supper was full of pride and division. It was a very ugly affair where certain people were being left out or um, shamed because they lacked material sustenance and so on and so forth. And so Paul will go on to tell them in verse 20 of chapter 11, what you're taking, he says, it's not the Lord's Supper. And I I I just want to make a side comment that That helps us to see how the supper is not magic, right? It's not some sort of hocus-pocus ritual. Because Paul says, when you don't observe it right, meaning when you guys are fighting against each other, it's not the Lord's Supper. It requires unity among us for it to be what Christ intends it to be. So it it was a parody in the Corinthian church. And so he tells them, he tells them, guys, discern the body. Meaning, when you celebrate, be mindful about it. Recognizing the body of Christ in your brother and sister, 
that they are part of his body, just as you are. Be at one. So once again, here's the upshot of this. This horizontal manner of the Lord's Supper creates bonds of loyalty between us. That koinonia binds us together. It lays an obligation on us. Specifically, if we're going to share fellowship with one another at the Lord's table, then we must share it consistently in the rest of our lives. So if we're recognizing the body of Christ here, we need to be prepared to recognize it elsewhere. So simply, Christ's shared table, or at his shared table, we learn to share our tables with one another. Koinonia here in the church extends outward into the rest of our lives. Now remember, and we'll wrap up with this, the root of koinonia is koinon, or common. So that commonness is expressed when we partake the Lord's Supper, and then it spills out into the rest of our lives. And it opens up the members of the church to one another in extraordinary ways. So look at the result of all this in the accounts in Acts. It says, day by day, people, or excuse me, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord was adding daily to their number day by day those who were being saved. So first note the frequency, day by day. Notice the openness, house to house. And notice the oneness, taking their meals together. This is what koinonia looks like in the church. And obedience to it is really simple. We open our homes to one another. We share our table with one another. And we do it often. And this is the gift that the Spirit gives us. He creates these bonds. And this is the goal to which we're striving as a church. And so I encourage you in Paul's words to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 10 of his first epistle, excel still more. We're doing these things, and I think we're doing them well, but he says, excel still more. So as we close now and prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I just want to invite you for a moment to open your heart to the work of the Spirit. That like on that day of Pentecost, He might fill our hearts and draw us into His koinonia with the Lord and with one another. So I invite you guys forward to come receive the elements, to take them back to your places, uh, spend a time with the Lord, and I'll lead us in prayer in just one moment.